Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Manveen here. Today's episode is the fourth and final installment of our investigative series about the rise and fall of Turkey's most powerful cult. Presented by my colleague, Louise Callahan, the Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times, this is part four of The Messiah and His Kittens. Last time on The Messiah and His Kittens. Arnokta sent me to another place where I was literally imprisoned. It was better to recruit women because they were more useful for the organisation. Women are easier to control than men. I received a message from Özkan. Right after we left Or's house, Or was saying to us, yeah, you know, use anything from the interview that you want. We do not allow her to publish our interviews anywhere. Our lawyers will take the necessary actions about this. It will be very comprehensive. I'm sitting in a busy shopping mall in Istanbul. This is Gülen Yeral. Uh, I'm from Istanbul and one of the uh, defendants of the Adnan Oktar case. Gülen Yeral was one of Adnan Oktar's kittens, who was arrested during the 2018 raids and jailed. Uh, I live in uh, Izmir right now with my family and for 17 uh, months I was in prison and also 13 months I was home arrested with electronic cuff on my foot. I'm happy to be here and have this conversation with you. Thank you. With her is another one of Adnan Oktar's followers. My name is Burcu Çekmece. I'm a friend of Mr. Adnan Oktar for about... Burcu Çekmece, like Gülen, went to jail for her involvement in the cult. 14 months in a closed uh, women's prison and three months in this Libya high security prison. And then for 13 months I was uh, under house arrest again with a handcuff on my uh, ankle. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this would be an opportunity for us to uh, give you some fact, that would be... Both Burcu and Gulam are about to tell me that Adnan Oktar, who was sentenced to over a thousand years in prison for crimes including abuse, fraud and sexual assault, is the real victim. You're listening to The Messiah and His Kittens, a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Louise Callahan, the Middle East correspondent for The Sunday Times. In this series, I'm investigating what lay beneath the brash, gaudy exterior of Turkey's most powerful cult. And through those that were involved, try to understand it. 
There is only one purpose in life, and it's love. This turned into one of his propaganda machines. Hi. Is Louise trustable? Young women can now walk freely in shopping malls. That's because of me. God will reveal Mr. Adnan Oktar and my friends are innocent. Everyone is ready in the world right now to believe anything. And now in jail. Does Adnan Oktar still have any power? last episode, I had to leave Turkey after being threatened by two former male members of the cult, known as Lions. I'd interviewed them about the sexual abuse and financial crimes they'd committed. But afterwards, they had turned against me. We also learnt how these Lions, and one of the most prominent kittens, played a vital part in taking down Adnan Oktar, the Muslim televangelist preacher who had run the cult for decades. Today, in the final episode of this series, We meet those who remain loyal and try to find out what's next. This is part four, The Kittens Who Still Purr. I was now back in Turkey. I'd had to leave after being threatened by Özkan Mamati, the ex-lion. But I didn't hear from him again, and after a few months, my lawyer said it was safe to return. I picked up where I left off, trying to get to grips with this ever-shifting story and the people involved. I remember meeting you at this EFTA yes. so many years ago. Yes, I remember the fact that uh, we uh, talked about Islam and what we are trying to represent, and I was glad to meet you. But... Gulen was the kitten I'd mentioned in part one of this series, who had come bounding up to me, saying that Adnan Oktar had liked me. Uh, Islam is the religion of love, religion of democracy. This is what uh, Mr. Adnan Oktar trying to represent to the whole world. This was the gathering that my journalist colleague Shabtai had found so bizarre. And you're like, what is going on? How is this happening? With the rabbis talking to the kittens and drinking tea with Christian evangelicals. Gulen told me that she'd studied economics. Graduated from uh, economics. And that she also has a master's degree. MBA degree from Istanbul. She's 43 and looks like all the kittens, with heavy makeup and a megawatt smile that doesn't quite reach her eyes. She's well dressed, extremely polite, and has a polished manner. Unsurprising since she was a regular on Adan Oktar's A9 TV channel. But right now, sitting in this cafe in a crowded mall in Istanbul, she's out of work. Right now, I'm not working. Both she and Burju, the other kitten who is sitting with us, have remained loyal to Adna Noktar and the cult. We were in very uh, small cells, really very dark, underground. Gilan moves the conversation on and starts talking about the police operation in 2018 that brought Oktar and his followers down. She claims the conditions in custody were inhumane. Uh, on these very small cells, like we were 10 or more people, and the ventilation system was closed intentionally. It was in July, the hottest month of the year in Istanbul. Uh, some of our human rights also were violated, our basic human rights, like 
going to the toilet. We had to wait for eight hours uh, to go to the toilet. We didn't have uh, to take shower for eight days. As well as saying they were crammed into cells without ventilation and not allowed to use the bathroom for hours at a time or given a shower for over a week, Gulen says they weren't properly fed or allowed to pray. Uh, we had so uh, little food and also uh, we couldn't perform our prayers. She's one of over 200 people from the cult who were arrested and charged. And all of a sudden uh, we need 200 lawyers is it possible? Of course it is not possible. It is also another violation of our right to a, a fair trial. Gülen and Borcu made it quite clear they believe the Turkish legal system has not been fair on them. At one point, Borcu mentions Özkan Mamati. He's really very hostile. The guy who threatened to denounce me for an unspecified offence. He'd struck a deal with the authorities. No jail time in exchange for admitting his crimes and testifying against the group as well as taking part in the police operation. For Burju, it didn't make sense. It was as if uh, a special system was prepared. If they slander against us, if they say, for example, she did this, she did that, then they say that if you uh, put your signature under this confession, then we will just take you out of the prison. Gulen and Burju were both found guilty of being part of a criminal organisation. I asked if their loyalty to Oktar ever wavered. Okay, he is in prison right now, but this is a process that we are living right now, but it will end. I can say that our love has grown more. Yes, Because uh, I have seen the sincerity of my uh, friends. I know that sooner or later, God will reveal that I am innocent. God will reveal Mr. Adnan Oktar and my friends are innocent. So Adnan Oktar has now been convicted of an array of crimes including running a criminal organization, sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, sexual abuse of a minor. None of them is true. If you say that someone has raped someone, you have to bring an evidence. You have to bring even one DNA sample. But we don't have any kind of these kinds of evidences in our cases. I mean, given that there are multiple allegations of this kind of thing going going back decades, why do you think this keeps happening? You're saying it's not true. Why do people well, keep accusing mm-hmm. Adlan Oktar of doing mm-hmm. these things? Yeah. The Turkish society, uh, actually the people who were leading this psychological uh, warfare against us, they know that the Turkish people, they are very alerted about certain things like sexuality, you know, this is one of the nerve tips uh, in the Turkish society. If you speak against a person saying this man did this or that against a woman, the community tries to lynch him. It's so easy to lead a community with such lies. Borja seems to be saying that there's a conspiracy against Adnan Oktar. Obviously, accusing someone of sexual impropriety or abuse carries a lot of weight. If you do something in the good way, Sometimes you can have some enemies. During the whole history, always there is a good side and the bad side. Gilandan said that Oktai was an outsider, a man with a purpose. In her mind, he was doing good, but the powers that be were against him. I also want to ask, why are they doing this kinds of accusations about a man who devoted his whole life to humanity, to uh, revealing, uh, prevailing love to the whole world. She paints Oktar as a righteous man who has been wronged. A kind of martyr, though she didn't use that word. Both Gulen and Borja had come to tell me their version of events. I was certainly not sold on the argument that Oktar is the true victim in all of this. Remember, Adnan Oktar was found guilty of sexual assault, 
sexual abuse of minors, kidnapping and fraud. But I was genuinely taken aback by how much they still believed in him. We also really appreciate that you listened every detail about our case. In the summer of 2016, nearly five years before Oktay was sentenced to spend his life in jail, something happened that would change Turkey forever. Jake Tapper here. Uh, let's go back to the breaking news out of Turkey. Some of the pictures coming into us from the Turkish broadcaster NTV, which appear to show military vehicles. Uh, there was a coup attempt. Mutinous factions within the armed forces tried to overthrow President Erdogan. So the Turkish military now at least has control in part of the capital city, is that right? Yes, indeed. indeed. But ultimately, it failed. Forced to surrender, the head of Turkey's armed forces, Hulusi Akar, has been rescued after being held hostage by... Over 250 people were killed. A defiant President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has addressed crowds of supporters in Istanbul. The Gulenists, a group who were once allies of Erdogan and his party, the AKP, were blamed for being behind the failed coup. He accuses Golan of being behind much of the unrest in Turkey. Although they've always denied it. Erdogan retaliated. Tens of thousands of people were arrested or sacked from their jobs across the country. And to this day, these so-called purges of potential enemies continue. The reason I'm telling you this is that some of Oktar's supporters have claimed they were swept up as part of this backlash. But I'm not sure that theory stands up. At the time of the coup, Oktar repeatedly denounced the plotters and was supportive of the government. Okay, yes, one of Oktar's many convictions was for aiding the Gulanists. But it wasn't the main thing that brought Oktar down. This is an example to all of you. You should all leave. He cannot say that. I'm talking to Jaylan Özgül. She's the former kitten we've heard from throughout this series, who defected and helped the authorities take Oktar down. Everyone is ready in the world right now to believe anything if you say this is happening because of Erdogan's bigoted beliefs. That everyone is ready. Okay. Jaylan and I are discussing the claims by some of the cult supporters that they're victims of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's push for a more socially conservative Turkey. They say that the group's liberal attitudes, like women dancing on Oktar's TV show in miniskirts, is the real reason they found themselves in the dock. First it was Freemasons, and then it was British Deep State. It's now liberals versus the Islamists. I went to see Gulen the other day. Yeah. She has obviously stuck with the cult, despite having been in prison, despite having presumably yeah, seen... Yeah, that's, that's really sad. You know, they're actually potentially very intelligent people, but I think they are feeling like their lives have already ended in a way. Were you surprised that some people stuck with the cult even after Oktar was in prison? No, I was surprised that a lot of people left. You know, these people have really strong beliefs also, and they believe that if they leave the cult, they will burn in hell for the eternity. That's why I'm not mocking them. Do I take them seriously? No. Should they be taken seriously? No, but I feel sad for them. I'm not angry. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Do you, do you think Oktar is going to be released? I don't know. I mean... Maybe he will be released, maybe he will not be released. Hundreds of people I can name one by one who are really anxious about it because he will come after them. He will come after me too, of course, but I just simply don't care, honestly. I don't know what he will do. He's very difficult to predict. There are a lot of people who are worried that Adan Oktar could soon be released. 
Oktar's lawyer told me he believes his client will be out of jail in two to three years. Okay, sure, of course he's going to say that. But the thing is, he isn't the only one. Three other highly reputable lawyers with knowledge of the case that I spoke to also believe this could happen. Right now, the appeal courts in Istanbul are looking at the case again. Oktar's main argument is that it wasn't a fair trial. First of all, it was extremely hot. Covid was, you know, at its peak and everyone had to wear masks in court and it was 40 degrees outside. That's Susie Valentine. She's a British lawyer who went to Turkey to observe the trial. Susie had emailed me because she'd heard from Gulen that I was making this podcast. She knew her from the proceedings at Charleon, Istanbul's biggest courthouse. Having attended court in the UK and being very used to certain formalities, it did seem rather shambolic to me. There were three trials going on at the same time. The conditions were fairly appalling. The air conditioning wasn't working in one of the the rooms, and yet the trial where there were hundreds of defendants, that happened to be the room where they didn't care too much about the conditions for those who were testifying. We're chatting on a video call. She's in the UK. So they would run through the rap sheets, which you... Susie is part of a group of British lawyers who, among other things, observe trials abroad. They're called the Solicitors International Human Rights Group. The Adnan Okta and Friends trials were particularly interesting to us from the perspective of mass trials, which are becoming quite frequent in the Middle East as a way of shaming people who have views that are different maybe to the government. Oktar was one of 236 people who stood trial, all of them alleged members of the cult. I felt that a lot of the lawyers were under a real time pressure and they were representing more than one defendant. And so it very much felt like conveyor belt defence, numerous charges against numerous defendants. And it felt like the judge was really giving some of the uh, defence attorneys very little time I think the other thing with the the mass trial is this sort of guilt by association. Once you've heard one defendant's rap sheet with numerous charges against them and then another person comes up and then another and another. I think from the judge's perspective, first of all, it's very confusing for him to keep all of these characters and the allegations against them separate. A, A lot of the evidence was acquired through what's called effective remorse, plea bargaining, getting a good deal for yourself. There were a number of allegations that individuals had been approached with a monetary award and not just the promise that charges would be dropped against them. Can you you expand a bit more on that? Who was offering who money for what? There were allegations made in the testimony of some of the defendants that they had heard that the authorities had approached some individuals. I think uh, in one case, someone had been offered 20,000 US dollars, as well as the promise of the charges being dropped against them. Was there ever any evidence of that that was submitted? I couldn't tell you whether that was investigated fully or whether that was purely hearsay, but that was certainly something that that we heard in court. When you went to observe the trial, were you aware that over the decades there had been large numbers of cases where witnesses had gone public with testimonies of sexual abuse and exploitation within the cult? That was something that we were we were aware of. Anonokta had been charged with many things over the years and many times been acquitted. I wonder whether that reputation 
didn't help them either in court. What I would reassert is that our place was to say, okay, so there may have been many members of the group, but they weren't being treated as individuals. They were really being dealt with just in one fell swoop um, without any consideration for any part they may have played in the organisation. I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So since the trial, you mentioned in the email that you'd been in touch with some of the defendants. So can you tell me a little bit about your interactions with them and how you find them? They seem to be in the main professionals from good families, people who'd had their lives turned upside down, people that people that I could find quite relatable, I suppose, and difficult to reconcile with the, the manner in which they were de- being depicted in court. In your email, and I think briefly earlier, you referred to the trial as the Abdan Okta and, and Friends trial. I haven't heard it referred to like that before. Where did you hear that? I believe that's that's how they refer to each other. The friends is just one of the, I'm not likening them to the Communist Party, but it's like comrade. It's just like friends is how they referred to each other. I think they very much saw it as a group of young professionals who were interested in politics, in a modern form of Islam and so forth. That's their own terminology. It really struck me when talking to Susie that she used this phrase, Adnan Oktar and friends. It's how the group refers to themselves. They depict their worship of Oktar as nothing more than a friendship. But anyone who has more than a passing knowledge of the group, or who has spent more than two minutes watching A9 TV, 
knows it's not like a friendship at all. They talk constantly about how much they admire Oktar, going on about all the supposedly clever and wonderful things he's done. Susie had some interesting points to make regarding the fairness of the trial and the breaches of human rights that might have taken place there as lawyers rushed to get through all the defendants and these enormous sentences were handed out. But overall, I find it hard not to feel like she had misunderstood where the cult was coming from. I was in London, at the studios in the Times and the Sunday Times building, finishing off this podcast. It had been five years since I first started working on this story. As I was coming to the end of it, there was one person I wanted to check back in with. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Well, the weather is again horrible here, but you know. I called up Jaylan, who was in Istanbul. I'm in my study in my apartment, which is kind of like a tiny room with a big desk and it's raining right now. It's not the prettiest view of Istanbul. It's quite grey today, but I still like it. So what's your life like now? I'm not complaining. I mean, I know it's a difficult time economically all around the world at the moment. During the pandemic, everyone had a rough time. Because of what I went through in my life, nothing really shakes me at the moment. It sort of helped me toughen up a little bit, you know. How was it trying to adapt back to normal life? Horrible. It was very difficult to really uh, adjust to life outside, especially when you were literally imprisoned for years. I hadn't gone shopping on my own for almost nine years. Can you imagine that? I didn't go to the market for nine years. I was really not socialized properly and my views about the world were really distorted. Unlike other kittens in the cult, Jaylan says she was never sexually abused. You were in that cult for 10 years. Yeah, almost, almost, yes. Did you ever think you wouldn't get out? Yes, every single day I thought I may not be able to, but, you know, you do everything you can. So I was just looking for an opportunity every single day. The problem for mostly the ladies there, I think they lost hope for themselves. I think I never did that for myself. It helped. What do you think drove Oktar to do what he did? I don't know what medicine says about this, but I don't think he's completely mentally stable. I would like to say he knows how to manipulate people. But again, if you look at the um, situation, I don't think he did it alone. The truth is, I was never completely curious about his motivation. I simply focused on my life and what I was going to do for myself right after So what's it been like surviving this whole experience? If I'm going to be extremely honest, I don't remember. (laughs) I think it's like giving birth and you don't remember the pain, so you get pregnant with the second baby, something like that. Oh my God, Jaylan, don't join a second cult. (laughs) No, I won't do that. But right now I'm very happy with my life and I'm, of course it was difficult, I remember bits and pieces, but I don't remember the emotions. Like, I remember for the first time after the cult, going to a coffee shop and ordering coffee for myself. It was confusing for me, but I cannot explain the feeling in that moment. I really don't remember the feeling, but it must be terrifying. Maybe it was a coping mechanism in that time. It doesn't sound very healthy, but I don't know. (laughs) No, I see where you're coming from. I mean... yeah. 
How do you see yourself in relation to what happened? Can you recognize yourself during that time? No, I feel like there is a woman and talking about her experiences. And I'm looking at that woman and I'm criticizing her and telling her, okay, that was stupid. Why did you do that? I feel like a stranger to that woman in that time. Do you have hope for the future now? Yeah, I don't see why not. Everything is going really well for me at the moment. I don't think I will have big problems for me in the future. I'm not focusing on that at the moment. I'm focusing on what I can do for myself and more. I'd come to the end of my trail of Adnan Oktar and of trying to understand what lay under the surface of this cult. After decades in the public eye, he was suddenly taken down and convicted of a huge range of crimes. Sexual abuse, fraud, identity theft. Yet this hadn't broken his hold over some of his supporters. He might even be released soon. To me, this shows how incredibly strong the pull of a cult can be. If sending its leader to prison for over a thousand years won't stop it, what will? It may well be the case that there were issues with the fairness of the trial and with the way the defendants were treated. But the testimonies we've heard show very clearly that Adnan Oktar's cult was not just a group of friends, as they like to claim, but an institution where the members were brainwashed and abused. There was a combination of factors in Turkey that allowed for the group to develop, but I don't think this story is particular to the region. This isn't about Islam or creationism or liberal religious thought. It's about oppression, coercion and control. A leader breaking his followers, making them dependent on him and exploiting their vulnerabilities. Cults are cults, whether their members speak Turkish or English, wear miniskirts or headscarves. They are destructive. And if there's one thing we can learn from this story, it's that anyone can be taken in. A lot of people look at these stories and they say, oh, I would never do something so stupid. But these kind of situations happen to people because of a certain system. You, you do not become a part of a cult overnight. It takes at least a year or a few years for people to literally brainwash you, manipulate you, manipulate people around you. So they change their circumstances. You basically lose your social support and you're very young. You think they are good people. You don't see that often negative things they do in that time. They don't show that to you. So there are lots of variables. And people think the story is very simple. You basically asked to join a cult and you go join it like a club. That's not how it works. This is why I'm still telling these stories. Of course, I wish it happens to nobody else. You've been listening to The Messiah and His Kittens with me, Louise Callahan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe. The producer in Turkey is Belal Eski. The executive producer is Asya Fuchs. With original music and sound design by Tom Birchill. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. Listener.